0: Welcome to the Tim Wendelboe coffee podcast today with a twist Tim is the guest uh, welcome Tim thank you very much uh, and why is Tim the guest today you might wonder um, well we have a lot of curiosity from our listeners and our customers about the project Finca El Suelo which is uh, Tim's farm and um, we who work with you Tim we know that you have a lot of uh, passion about this project and you just returned from there actually yeah came home uh, Midnight uh yesterday, <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> so straight back to it yeah, um and as you might understand as well, Tim is the one with the most knowledge about the farm since he's there um but we uh both the our listeners and we who work with you are uh curious about the project so uh this episode will be about uh the work being done at the farm um think suelo uh and why Tim uh is spending so much time there and resources uh, at the coffee farm um and how that might compare to the actual uh result that is being oh, yeah. uh, done there um and uh why we we do this uh when we could do uh, farming with other farmers as well uh also a bit about what the future holds for finca el suelo yeah um understanding the background uh, of the way that we work with uh, our farmers um, and learn about coffee farming. Yeah,
1: and I have to correct you, it's not our farmers. <laughs> we don't own them. So no. um, that's uh, actually a terminology that's important to us. Uh, For sure. Yeah, that uh,
0: producers we buy from are their own people. <laughs> of course, of <laughs> course. The wording is important, of course. Yeah, yeah. So So... Um, Tell us about your trip to Fincaresuelo. How
1: was it? Wow, well, uh, well, I spent the last two weeks on the farm. Um, uh, normally, I would go uh, four to five times a year. That's a lot of traveling. But I try to kind of condense it so that I'm there uh, for quite a big time at, at the time, so I don't have to go too often. So, for the last year, I've been there three times, I think. Okay. Yeah. I went there in March and August, and now in November, yes. Mm. But the plan next year is to go four times. Okay, so, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I spent uh, two weeks there. Uh, it's kind of um, very intense when I'm there. Um, it's work from six a.m. in the morning till six in the afternoon uh, wow. normally, and then you eat dinner and then you go to bed and sleep. <laughs> so. Um, all day. Yeah, all day. Uh, it's manual work, and I, I really like that because um, it's kind of recreational a little bit. You're in the field working, you know, it's just you and nature. I can listen to podcasts and stuff, but um, sometimes it's nice to listen to the birds as well. Nice. Yeah, that's so um, Nice. Uh, so the, the plan for this last trip was to kind of follow up on the trees that we have in the field and uh, make compost, add compost, add compost extracts, uh, also plant some new trees. Uh, we planted some seeds um, and uh, I also milled and uh, did quality control of some coffee that we had harvested. And uh, also because my farm is next to Finca Tamana, so I stay at Finca Tamala. I don't have a house on my farm. Um, that means I also follow up on Finca while when I'm there. So I stay with
0: Elias and his family. And, yeah. So there's a lot of different activities going on at the same time. Yeah, yeah.
1: and of course, I have to run the company at home as well. Of course, now I have a CEO that can help me do that. But uh, there's always a lot of emails. So kind of fortunately, it rains a lot in Colombia. So we have a lot of water. But that also means I don't necessarily go out and work when it's pouring down because uh, it's just uh, too complicated to work when it's too, too rainy. So yeah. that's
0: the time when I can sit down and do emails. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So that's uh, kind of a natural segment then to um, a bit about how uh, do you work with uh, the farmers and uh, maybe how you uh, try to build uh the relationships the the long-term relations with with these farmers um and the processes um as well yeah um do you want to tell a bit about that yeah we can I mean in general we our is
1: we don't buy coffee from people we don't know so and that's (laughs) kind of the main uh philosophy for our buying we covered a little bit how we work with farmers in a past episode um where I was talking with Daniel and Marn. But uh, I would say in general, um, every farm is a little bit different. Um, so for instance, with Elias at Tamala, the work has been really intense. and I've spent a lot of time with him to change the way they work with coffee and also help him improve everything from planting new cultivars. That means different coffee trees, um, changing the way they process coffee uh, several times actually, because they also change the equipment and setup. Uh, improving how they dry the coffee, how they store the coffee, how they separate the lots. You know, now we do quality control on the farm. We have a cupping lab there. Um, and just in general, looking at the uh, whole production on how they produce coffee and see where can we improve it. And you cannot do that in one day. So uh, these things take time. And uh, Elia says poco a poco. That means little by little. Um, right. Uh, w- we have been kind of able to look at all the different aspects and slowly improve one step at a time Uh, with other farmers this uh, has been a process that's been much slower i would say because um, uh, it's been a result of as a learning process Uh, when i started buying coffee directly like in 2008 2009 i started going and visiting these farmers that we're buying from and slowly i've been learning myself on the way and they have been learning so we have implemented small things along the way but that's been more like based on me going there once or twice a year spending a few days and um, giving feedback on when we taste the coffee and so on and then we look at we spent a lot of time looking at the process before like how the coffee is fermented and washed and drying especially and uh, storing uh so that was kind of the main focus before but now we have kind of good protocols on that uh so the most of the producers we buy from are doing a good job there and then now we can look at more of the agricultural part like planting new cultivars uh, improving
0: you know soil health yeah planting shades would you say that that's a big part of this um um, relationship with the uh, with the farmers because the the timeline is there you know it, it it's not done overnight there's a no. there's a process <laughs> so yeah
1: I mean uh, the reason why we want to do this um, work is because we want to secure the quality of our supply chain in the future and uh, coffee is not uh, a fast crop uh, a lot of coffee buyers and uh, people in for our part of the world where we don't produce coffee, we think of it as we want to change something and we want immediate results. Yeah, That's normal in our daily life. Um, but with coffee, when you plant coffee, it can take five to 10 years before you have a good production of a new cultivar, for instance. Right. So you have to have long-term thinking. Um, and like for instance i know that if we start planting shade now it will improve the quality in the next 15 years it's not next oh, yeah, year <laughs> exactly so yeah it <laughs> because takes it, some time it takes some time for a tree to grow and um i like for instance on my inst- or uh, on our instagram account for our think i'll suelo instagram uh very often i get asked uh, why don't you plant shade trees i can't see any shade trees in your pictures why haven't you planted shade trees we have planted them it just takes a long time for them to grow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you can't see them. They're they're planted, but you can't see them. Yeah,
1: and that's a reason why deforestation is a pro- problem, because it takes you know, 20, 30, 40 years for a forest to grow back. And yeah. um, in the meanwhile, the soil has been degraded, and you can't really just cut down a forest and plant a new one and expect it to be the same. Exactly.
0: I I, I feel like a lot of people don't have this um, mindset of the, the long-term timeline here. But uh, it's it's uh, interesting to try to change people's uh, outlook on that, for sure. Um, and you're, you briefly mentioned it already, but um, do you have any examples of uh, experiments that you've done and uh, maybe some results uh, and maybe even some unsuccessful uh, experiments? Uh, done here Uh, on the farm or in general for sure on the farm maybe to start Uh, with (laughs) well on the farm i mean well
1: we haven't really done too many experiments yet the whole project is an experiment um uh, we can maybe touch on uh, the kind of goals with the farm before i start talking about that but um uh, so when i bought the farm in 2015 um i it was basically supposed to be like an experiment in itself, um, where I could do a little bit more work uh, at farm level that was not processing based uh, to see if we can improve the quality. And one thing would be like planting trees with bigger spacing in between, planting shade. um, maybe remove some of the cherries on the trees to see if the ones that remained on the trees were, would be higher quality like oh, yeah. you know that's some inspiration i got from the wine industry and stuff but I, you know i haven't done that uh, i don't think it's uh, necessarily a good thing to do but um it's interesting at least <laughs> yeah yeah and then uh, when i bought the farm um, i was uh, uh, there was a guy in the us that uh, tipped me off f- that i should check out dr elaine uh, which is one of the leading soil scientists in the world uh soil biologists and i took her online classes uh, and also went to her farm to do some practical work um and learned about soil biology and how uh, actually nature can farm plants um, you know the way nature intended it to be done it's not very natural to put on nitrogen fertilizer and uh, spraying pesticides and fungicides and herbicides and exactly so um When I learned about these techniques from uh, Elaine, I realized that the goal with the farm uh, changed from being like an experimental playground to being uh, a model farm where we... uh, I want to prove, and I haven't proved it yet. (laughs) That's very important to say. I want to be able to prove that you can grow more and higher quality coffee without using mineral fertilizer and pesticides and fungicides and so on. Yeah. So... um, uh, so far, not so good. We have produced 30 kilos uh, in total in the two years that we have been producing. Uh, but it, there is more to come. And I recently returned from Guatemala. Uh, I was on the same trip. Um, I finished my trip in Guatemala, visiting a producer called uh, Josue Morales. And he's doing the same uh, same techniques. And uh, they are producing more and higher quality coffee. And the reason why he knows okay. is because he also farms conventionally. So All right. he, he has a direct comparison. So uh, he's successful with it, and uh, you know it's only a matter of time, I think, and effort before I can be successful with it as well. And then the goal is to teach it to other people and spread the word, because most coffee farmers today are depending on mineral fertilizer. And just the last year, the fertilizer cost doubled in Colombia. Uh, and, of course, now the coffee prices are high, but they won't be in the future. And that means when the prices go down again, the fertilizer price will still go as be the same high, and uh, then they will make less money. So if we can make producers less depending on mineral, fer- mineral fertilizer, if we can uh, help them grow healthier plants
0: uh, with less effort, then uh, I think that's a good thing. So that's the goal now. Definitely sounds like um, both a, a very lofty goal as well as <laughs> a, it should be a very, um, very good goal. I yeah. would say, both for the, the end result that we're, we're drinking right now, actually, and for the farmers uh, themselves. Yeah. You know? And
1: I mean, this doesn't only apply for coffee. It applies for all food production. There are successful farmers doing it with other crops. And um, I personally believe that this is the future of farming. Uh, right. And it's kind of going back to our roots uh be, because you know before the 1900s we farmed that way <laughs> yeah
0: so we we shot ourselves in the foot basically by introducing these uh artificial fertilizers and uh, and yeah. growing it in that way
1: you can say that but the argument against is that we are producing much more food now uh, but um uh, we we can produce the same amount or even more with better techniques that actually sequesters carbon in the soil that uh, builds soil instead of depletes soil and so on, so, um we have the knowledge now, and it's just getting better and better because mm. there's more and more research being done so um whereas before we didn't necessarily have those that knowledge and uh, that's why we had a lot of problems before also before um mineral fertilizers came along mm. um people had failed crops and so on, yeah, and uh, you know that's a natural thing, so that will always happen uh, yeah. It's just a matter of how you handle it and um Josué says um his plants that are biological, mm-hmm. they are able to recuperate faster than the ones that are uh, sprayed with fungicides and stuff after like a leaf rust outbreak. Makes sense. So um, nature works faster than a chemistry lab. Yeah. So uh, to, to answer your question, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what are the experiments that we have failed? Well, I would say the whole experiment has been a failure so far because we have been producing uh, 30 kilos of coffee, green coffee, uh in two years but um the biggest mistake was that we started before I had good knowledge we started in 2015 we planted four and a half thousand trees coffee trees and uh, in the areas where they are there are only a few trees left um and they are still not growing and then we I learned some uh, new planting techniques in Kenya where we just made basically a bigger hole in the ground and composted material in the hole and then put the tree in and those trees are growing much faster and uh, you know are able to survive. So, um, But we started that in 2019, so four years later. And yep. th- those are the trees that are producing now. So mm-hmm. n- none of the trees we planted in 2015 that survived are producing. But all the trees we have planted from 2019 and, and up until now are either producing or
0: producing next year. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like this is touching back on on both the, the, the amount of effort it takes and also the the timeline uh, here. So um, you learn from your failures, basically, and you have a, uh, a timeline and a, um, a growing process, actually, for yourself as well, where you, uh, as a farmer yourself now, learn a lot from your failures, yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, before I even bought a coffee farm, I had never grown even
1: a tomato. Yeah, <laughs> the only thing that I've grown was a couple of uh, of uh, herbs that I had in a flower pot outside my only oh, my balcony. But uh, I didn't grow them from scratch. <laughs> so interesting, interesting. I have never been uh, like very into plants or farming or anything until I started with coffee and became more and more interested. And especially now after I have learned about soil biology. Uh, now my kind of future dream is to have a uh, you know house with a garden where I can have Norwegian apples and stuff like that. So, oh, yeah. Um, but nice. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe,
0: maybe in the future. In the future, for sure. Um, okay. So I thought we'd move on a bit uh, on to um, uh, Colombia itself. Yeah. And uh, maybe a little bit about my uh, background, actually, as yeah. well, since I have a link to Colombia yeah. uh, where the farm is situated. Yeah. So, um, and since I'm uh, on the podcast for the first time as well, yeah. Um, uh, my background is I'm adopted from Colombia, uh, from Bogota, yeah, w- which is not that far away uh, uh, as well. Um, but I have a very, very Norwegian upbringing, so to me, it's uh, kind of uh, was a natural thing uh, to uh, start working with you as well, because uh, you have the the meeting of the the two countries and the culture as well, uh, which really interests me. Um, and the country itself. So maybe a natural question then is uh, why Colombia? <laughs> why why have a farm there? Yeah, <clears throat> uh,
1: I actually have two cousins that are also adopted from Colombia, <laughs> but uh, that's not the reason why I have a farm in Colombia. Well, I went to Colombia in two thousand and seven, um, and. Uh, went on a trip with uh, Morton from Nordic Approach. He then worked for Solberg Hansen. And then Alejandro Hifo, which is the exporter that we work with in Colombia. And uh, Alejandro showed us around. You know, we went to many different regions. Um, I really liked Colombia. The country is fantastic. It's beautiful. People are really hospitable. Uh, coffees are amazing. You know, we have everything from quite generic, boring coffees to fantastic, whiny, fruity coffees, floral coffees. So the diversity is there, uh, except that Colombia have a very strong coffee federation and a research foundation um, for coffee. So most of the farmers are more or less doing the same thing. And of course, there is always exceptions to the rule. So there's over half a million farmers there. But I would say maybe, I think the number I got the last was 553,000 farmers. So let's say 550,000 farmers. Are doing exactly the same thing, oh, meaning yeah. they're growing either Catura, Castillo, or del Colombia. They are depulping pulping and washing the coffee in their own farm in a small uh, wet mill, and then they're selling dry parchment to either an exporter or a cooperative. Mm-hmm. You know that's the model in Colombia yeah. f- for the majority of farmers. Okay. Uh, the average size is two hectares, uh, and because everyone is growing more or less the three different varieties, there are very genetically very similar (laughs) the flavor is potentially also very similar but then you start to see very different uh, flavors based on you know a little bit on processing but also on altitude microclimates regions and so on yeah so they actually have a like a denomination of origin uh, certification for at at least three different origins and um so personally my favorite coffees from Colombia are from Nariño Uh, they have very high altitude coffees extremely S- sweet and whiny and floral uh, but when i started going to colombia there was a little bit more uh, social unrest there uh, you know with the guerrillas and stuff so uh, i was not recommended to go there so i ended up in huila i met a guy called Elias in 2007 uh, he gave me samples of his coffee i didn't particularly like it because <laughs> it was uh, over fermented Mm. but he was a very nice guy and then i ended up buying a uh, coffee from uh, um, a vereda called el socorro in uh, uh, close to the town of pital from a small farm called la Lumita. and um, i bought that coffee two years i went to the farm a couple of times uh, elias even came uh, with us one time to the farm mm. and then uh, the last time i was supposed to go there um, alejandro the exporter called me and said you know we cannot go because the farmer left He abandoned the farm. So uh, then I didn't buy the coffee anymore uh, from that farm. And uh, I bought some other coffees, then kind of gave up Colombia a little bit. And I came back in 2011. There was a World Barista Championship going on there. So I went on another trip with Alejandro around Colombia. And then uh, we visited Finca Tamala and Elias. Elias had just bought the neighboring farm of Finca Lalumita that I used to buy from. Okay, yeah. So, Finca Lalumita is at the entrance of Finca Tamala, um, so I have to pass that when I go to Tamala. But Elias had bought the farm because it was a big farm, it was 63 hectares or 64 hectares. Uh, he didn't have money to buy it, so he basically said to the seller that he would pay with the coffee that was on the trees. <laughs> so, he would ha- harvest the coffee, sell it and then pay for the farm. And, of course, he had a mortgage on it. The seller agreed because I think the seller wanted to move to Ecuador or something. Um, So when I met Elias there in 2011, he had just bought the farm. um, And we sat down. I knew him. I had met him several times. He seemed like a very nice guy. And uh, I proposed to work with him uh, in the upcoming harvest to see if we could improve the quality. He said yes so i went in 2012 worked there for a week we processed some coffee together and we bought it and that was the start of tamana yeah but um this is a very long story but <laughs> <laughs> um so when he had just bought the farm he he was lacking finance um we could only buy like 30 bags of coffee because he didn't have capacity to produce more for high quality he only had one small dryer a small house he needed more dormitories for workers he needed more dryers to be able to dry coffee Uh, he needed to invest a lot so even if we paid a very good price for the coffee it wasn't enough so we started discussing me renting some land so he could get some extra income and I could do the experiments (laughs) Um, and then we couldn't agree how to do that properly so um, I asked if I could buy maybe a hectare of Mm -hmm. land and then uh, he said, I'll think about it. And then he came back to me and said, I have seven hectares. That is kind of a corner of the farm that has been untouched. It's only been grazed by his cows. It's already fenced in, so it's easy to separate on paper. Um, so um, he offered to sell me those seven hectares of his farm. And, and that's uh, the
0: that's the size of the, the farm. Yeah. So that's yeah. Finca El Suelo now is yeah. seven hectares seven. that
1: used to be Tamala. But there were no coffee planted there. Okay. Hmm um so that's kind of why it became colombia uh i wanted to buy a cof- uh, farm in other countries but um heard it wasn't necessarily possible
0: heard about kenya or ethiopia yeah maybe? i mean
1: those would be obvious ones mm. and i mean I, I could buy a farm in kenya but you also need people to help you and uh
0: and why is that the obvious choice uh
1: because kenya and ethiopia have the best coffees for, like that's just the way right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, But uh, you need people to help you. And, um, uh, yeah, so because of the history with Elias, uh, when he offered to sell seven hectares, that also would enable him to invest a lot of money in his farm. Right. Um, So we did it. And I I bought it for market price. There was no nice price or anything. Um, And he took the money and invested in his farm and infrastructure, and uh, I started my project. So I'm very much depending on him when it comes to hiring workers and doing, like, cutting weeds and stuff, like that, working there when I'm not there. Right. And also, I need uh, help from him, you know, to organize stuff. And, yeah. yeah, so for sure it's a uh,
0: learning experience as well. Yeah, and I also have and to say
1: just a final thing. Yeah. Co- Colombia has fantastic potential. Like, yeah. the coffees are fantastic. And um, uh, I believe that you can produce much, much higher quality coffee in Colombia uh, mm. than we are currently
0: seeing. And just so we understand um, a little bit about the geography here, um, uh, could you describe where it's located in in terms of uh, the country itself? Yeah.
1: So you have to take out a map. Um, It's in the south of Colombia, so in the state of Mm Huila. That's spelled with an H, Mm. Huila. And uh, so I normally would fly from... Oslo to Amsterdam or Paris and then from Paris or Amsterdam to Bogota and then I have to fly from Bogota to uh, the capital of Wila, which is Neiva Mm -hmm. and then from Neiva I have to drive three and a half hours further south west into the central Cordillera which is the middle mountain range in the Andes Mountains and uh, to a town called Pital Uh, and from Pital to the farm is 45 minutes so uh, there's another way through La Plata because the farm is in between La Plata and El Pital so it's actually the border is on my farm <laughs> okay <laughs> between this, those two towns so um uh, interesting um so yeah it's in the south of uh, of colombia so um the thing is um huila is famous for having very kind of sweet soft coffees with caramel and citrus flavor because they all grow the same uh-huh. more or less the same cultivars okay um but um It's also a state where it's a little bit less social unrest and uh, closer to the borders of Ecuador and Venezuela, of course, and um, they're famous for uh, producing good coffees and the altitude on the farm is not the highest,
0: but uh, you can manipulate that with planting shade. And and that's interesting because I've heard this, that um, some uh, producers uh, they they put the elevation so the meters above sea level yeah. uh, on their on their bags actually uh, how how do you feel like that uh, does that uh, affect the coffee does it affect uh, yes maybe? and I mean, yes and no
1: yeah um, and Colombia is a great example of how it also doesn't matter because there is such a huge difference between microclimates from just one region to another and also within my region like you know i can stand on my farm mm. and you know pull my hair out because we haven't had rain in three months and then i can watch the mountain just across the valley and see that it's pouring down every day um, because you have the andes mountains they branch into three branches um, you have extreme uh, differences in climate so i have gotten criticized because why do I buy coffee from Finca Tamana it's obviously not the highest altitude it's not the best coffee in Colombia Mm. and I agree it's not um but uh we can uh we can manipulate that by planting shade and plant different cultivars and you know working um so altitude is just one factor that might affect quality yeah generally higher altitude means slower maturation which means more flavor. Mm -hmm. Uh, can also mean too much rain too much clouds a lot of problems with fungus so quality goes down again (laughs) yeah so uh, everything is relative and um, for me putting uh, altitude on a coffee bag without telling the full story doesn't mean anything Mm -hmm. because 1200 meters can be high it can also be extremely low 1600 meters can be high it can also be very low so it really depends on each micro region
0: yeah I understand that the, there's a starting point here, and there's uh, a lot of thing that happens along yeah. the along the way of the the process of uh, of the farming. Um, so very interesting. Uh, I was curious about this elevation, how it how it affects uh, um, the the end result uh, as well. Yeah, I would say like <coughs> where I've been able
1: to taste differences in uh, elevation, like Finca Nascimento in that we buy from is a good example because they harvest from 1500 to 1800 meters, and there is a difference in, in flavor intensity in the lower part and the higher part of the farm. Mm. But it can also be, uh, it, it can also be the opposite if it's too cold, if it's too high up. Can yep. also be too cold, too much rain. Right. So, uh, but in general, w- coffee buyers tend to look for higher altitudes because you have more flavor intensity, higher acidity
0: without it being sour, it's just more complexity. Okay, yeah. Interesting, very interesting. So um, you've uh, already touched a bit upon the the history of the project uh, that we heard now. Um, And um, looking back uh, on it, um, maybe touching upon a little bit about how how it is with uh, the earth biology and uh, in relation to the environment and uh, the economy of the farmer. Is there anything you would uh, like to uh, <laughs> highlight and, and maybe do differently if you had a chance? You know, um,
1: oh, this is very complex, but I, I, like I said in the introduction, <coughs> maybe I didn't say it. I just did a Q&A, Q&A, and a live q and and I feel like I'm talking about the same things over again. But um, You are. <laughs> um y- y- you know in general um most coffees are farmed in an unsustainable way um because they have to use mineral fertilizer pesticides fungicides herbicides um and uh, <laughs> the it, it's not the farmers fault they they have been taught to do this um by people who Normally make money on selling them the products, <laughs> right? So um, I'm not gonna have any conspiracy theories or anything here, but uh, the fact is, like when you when you start using mineral fertilizer, you definitely uh, remove a lot of the biology in the soil uh, because mi- mineral fertilizers are salts, and um, they tend to remove the fungi in the soil, which is uh, yeah, fungi is not necessarily a mushroom. <laughs> Not all fungi produces mushroom, but all mushrooms are fungi. <laughs> but um, uh, So you remove them, uh, and um, you uh, can also kill other little critters and animals in the soil, uh, especially when they start using herbicides and stuff. So you mm. basically sterilize the soil. It's not sterile, but uh, you basically remove a lot of the soil biology, which is supposed to be there to feed the plants. Yeah. Um, so then the plant is only getting the nutrients that you put on, which is uh, because the plant is standing in more or less a dead uh, medium, which is then dirt, not soil. And then you put on nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, boron, whatever, mm. uh, and feed the plants maybe two, three, four times a year. Uh, it's like we're going to McDonald's, getting hamburger, french fries, and Coca-Cola three times a year. <laughs> yeah, we can live. But we're not going to be very healthy you know yeah. so the plants they get sick they look green but they're not healthy uh, so that's when other pathogens like leaf rust which is a fungus that is supposed to remove sick plants from nature mm-hmm. it starts to attack the coffee plants and the leaves so um that's a fungus a pathogenic fungus attacks the leaves the leaves will fall off and the plant have to spend energy producing new leaves instead of producing coffee cherries right so in order to prevent this we spray fungicides and fungicides they will kill the leaf rust but also the beneficial fungi that could prevent the leaf rust from happening in the first place Mm. also uh, it will of course fall to the ground when it's raining so killing more fungus in the soil and then uh, you have more problems with leaf rust uh, because the leaf rust will, uh, um, will uh, mutate. Um, so then you have to either f- spray new types of fungicides or you start to plant uh, resistant varieties, hybrid varieties that are developed by people, um, not uh, with the GMO or anything, it's just bred by natural breeding. Okay. And then uh, after 10 to 20 years, you realize that the plants that used to be resistant are not resistant anymore. So then you have to have new plants and new fungicides. And this, this pattern we've been doing for many, many years, yeah. and it's only getting worse. Okay. And then, uh, of course, uh, you're told that the weeds are competing with your coffee plants. Uh, they take up the nutrients that you're putting on the ground, the n- mineral fertilizer. So instead of cutting the weeds, you spray Herbicides, right. glyphosate, yeah. which uh, you know, you can, it's uh, not good for human beings. Um, and also, b- will bind the nitrogen uh, so that you have to put more nitrogen on to feed the plants. And uh, that also feeds the weeds. So you get more weeds. So you put more herbicides, you have to put more nitrogen, you get more weeds, you put more, <laughs> and, so yeah. and so on and so on. So it's a vicious cycle. Um, we call it moron farming because <laughs> you're a moron and you have to put more on all the time. Yeah. <laughs> this is not my words. This is uh, f- uh, what I've learned from the pioneers in soil biology. Um, so um, you have to put more and more products on. You mm-hmm. have to plant newer and newer cultivars. Uh, you have to put more and more fertilizer on. Um, and that means your cost is also quite high. Because yeah. uh, one thing is to have the people to put the fertilizer on. I mean, you have to do that with compost as well, so that's kind of stable. Right. But uh, the fertilizer price is also set by the petroleum price. Uh, we, it, you have to use a lot of gas or petroleum to produce the fertilizers, uh, for instance, here in Norway. And then we ship it with a container ship to Colombia, for instance, mm. where it's put on the soil. So not a very sustainable no uh, thing to do right
0: and it ties ties back to what you mentioned earlier about uh, how you uh, how this affects the farmers and what they pay and so on so yeah. yeah it makes sense
1: so just to give you the whole picture um the coffee price has more or less been the same for 50 years uh, revolving around one dollar and 50 cents per pound a pound is uh, about a half a kilo of green coffee um so, the price has been one and a half dollars, let's say, for a half a kilo of coffee for 50 years. And sometimes it's uh, two and a half, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's 50 cents. But the average price is around, I think, one and a half dollars. Okay. Right mm-hmm. now it's a bit higher, so it's closer to three. And that's because we had a frost in Brazil. So, they, that's the biggest producing country. The coffee is off the market for a year or two, and then the prices go up. And also, demand has gone up. Yeah, uh, right. China is starting to drink coffee and so on so the prices are now higher it's not as high as they should be i think but uh they're higher and um also the fertilizer pr- price has doubled in colombia i think it has tripled in honduras oh wow along with other costs like labor exactly. costs food costs
0: so it doesn't really make sense that the price of the coffee has been stagnant for no. this, this long
1: no, no, i mean we have inflation and everything so exactly but um regardless of that uh, we know that uh, historically if, even if the coffee prices are high for a period they normally come down when brazil is back in full production again yeah and that's also because when the prices are high a lot of coffee farmers who have abandoned the coffee because of low prices come back to coffee to produce coffee again right so probably this has been going on many times it will probably happen this time as well there will be a surplus of coffee very soon the prices will drop but the fertilizer price will stay high Uh, so in order to break out of that chain um you can change the way you farm
0: yeah and that that sounds to me like um, uh, what uh, Finca Suelo is uh, a lot about. Yes. Uh, and uh, would you uh, maybe like to expand on that? What is the role of Finca Suelo in today's coffee world?
1: Well, as I said, uh, I'm trying to inspire people to try a different way of farming. So organic farming, we can call it, or biological farming. And that means not buying mineral fertilizer, not buying fungicides, not buying pesticides, you're not gonna kill anything on your farm. You're gonna make things live on your farm. Yeah. So a friend of mine in Brazil called it the agriculture of life. Whereas yeah. the other type of agriculture is the agriculture of death, because you're trying to kill the fungus, you're trying to kill the weeds, you're trying to, you know, kill everything.
0: It sounds very obvious when you put it like <laughs> that, but I don't think it is to maybe most farmers or most people who yeah, have been as in set in their ways. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I actually, just to illustrate this, um, when I was in Guatemala now, Josué uh, showed me uh, a fungus that grows on the coffee trees that is actually a natural predator of the leaf rust. So if you have that fungus, you can propagate it and spray it on the leaves and everything. So we have a natural fungus that will prevent the leaf rust from uh, attacking right. uh, the coffee trees. And this this happens naturally. Mm. Like if you have balance, you don't have sick plants. Yeah. So, um, you know, don't take my word for it. I know we're going to succeed, but um, um, we have produced 30 kilos of coffee in in many years. So, you know, for a farmer to figure that out on their own... Uh, would cost them their livelihood. So that's yeah. not possible. So since I have a business here that pays my salary, I'm able to invest time and money into figuring out how to actually do it. And then once we have kind of figured it out, we can start teaching it to other people. Right. And the reason why I think this is uh, important is because you can break out of this loop of, yeah, the, the coffee farmer cannot control the coffee price. Because uh, in most cases... It's uh, you know set by traders in the coffee exchange, and yeah. uh, so the coffee farmers even not, not in the equation. And I'm not talking about specialty coffee here. I'm just talking about coffee in general.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, when you can't control the price, you you can only control your costs. (laughs) Makes sense. Um, And if you can take out mineral fertilizer, pesticides, fungicides from the equation, uh, that's a big part of the cost. And uh, actually, I got some numbers from Elias. Uh, He was, uh, let's see if I have that here. Um, Yeah, I can't find it. But um, he's using a substantial amount per year fertilizer of course he has a big farm but it's a lot of money yeah so um, if you can make your own compost um you know you have the material already growing on your farm and if you don't you can just plant it yeah (laughs) Uh, you can use that material to make compost and then you apply it and the labor costs you already are using for mineral fertilizer you can just swap the product that they're putting out Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, something that you make on your own so you're basically removing Uh, the mineral fertilizer costs and uh, all the fungicide costs and everything.
0: Yeah, it sounds to me like you're um, uh, in a way trying to make uh, farmers less dependent or more independent uh, and being able to have their own closed kind of uh, uh, ecosystem on their own farm definitely
1: yeah. and um, like uh, one thing is to to make your own compost and everything another thing is it is actually beneficial to grow other plants with the coffee like beans corn <laughs> yeah okay so you can also grow more food which is you know unheard of in most uh, conventional systems because it w- it will affect the productivity yeah, people yeah. are obsessed with productivity because productivity has been the only way to for the farmer to make money to produce as much as possible yeah uh, with as little as possible yeah so uh, the critique is always with organic coffee, well, y- you're going to lose production. Uh, Josué is proving otherwise. He needs less cherries in order to produce the same amount of kilos of green coffee that uh, yeah. he has to on his conventional farm. Um, also, if it's higher quality, you might get a higher price, but regardless of that, you have lower costs. Right. Um, but you have to kind of know how to do it. <laughs> exactly. So you can. there's many different ways of making compost. You can make bad compost that doesn't do anything for you. You can make good compost that does wonders for you. Um, and So I'm told. <laughs> 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 Again, we have produced 30 kilos of coffee. Yeah. But uh, even if you produced, let's say, 80% of the volume, mm. um, you still have much lower cost. Right. So you have to think of uh, farming coffee as a business you know uh, for my business as well here in norway mm. it's not about selling the most amount mm. it's about making money yeah <laughs> so we could sell you know probably 100 tons more a year if we wanted to but we wouldn't make any money because we had to dump the price to do that yeah so uh, at some point you have to figure out the balance between production and cost and profits and everything yeah and uh, unfortunately, most farmers, even in Norway, are not—they don't have a degree in business. Exactly. Uh, a lot of farmers in Colombia have just finished high school, if uh, in best case, and uh, that's okay, you know. But uh, it's pretty simple math. Uh, regardless, if you lower your cost with, you know, eighty percent, and your production sure. only goes down twenty percent, you're probably better
0: off anyway. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's uh, let's let's uh, loop a bit back uh, to where you uh, were and mentioned about um, what is being grown on uh, on your farm uh, I think I'll uh, because I as well because I know that a lot of our uh, listeners are curious about um, the variants. yeah and the varieties and yeah, yeah the varieties <laughs> that you're you're growing there so do you want to talk a little bit about that well
1: first of all I have to say, th- mostly I'm, what's growing on my farm is weeds. And I'm not talking about <laughs> the drug. I'm talking about the weeds in general. And, um, right. People are obsessed about weeds being a bad thing. Mm. For me, it's a way of nature telling me that we're covering the soil because we need to grow soil. <laughs> um, so weeds are highly beneficial, I think. Um, you cut them manually, they become mulch or like organic matter that lives or just lays on the soil that uh, keeps moisture in the soil it's food for the microbes so they can eat uh, there's a lot of benefits to having weeds on the farm mm. so that's the main thing we're growing <laughs> okay <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah. but in terms of coffee we are um we have uh when i started off i planted a lot of uh, tipica which is one of the older uh, kind of cultivars in the americas basically mm-hmm. we had like Borbon and Tipica that are kind of the original ones. And then all the other cultivars that are in the Americas are f- coming from them, most, mm. more or less, okay. genetically. Yeah. And then I, have, uh, I planted some geisha, which is uh, an Ethiopian landrace. Uh, it's taken directly from Ethiopia and planted and became a very popular thing right. uh, because of its flavor and quality. But um, most of those plants are dead. Mm. and then we have planted uh, last week we planted 80 new geisha trees mm. with a new technique that i've learned just to see if they can grow uh, better than the previous ones because the previous ones disappeared like we have some left but they're not producing um uh, and basically the the first ones we planted we we drilled a small hole with a l- little machine that we use in colombia mm. and it's kind of maybe 20 centimeters deep in the soil and the diameter is maybe 10 centimeters and then okay. we put the tree in there with some compost mm. and most of those trees died and then uh, I learned in Kenya to dig a hole that was one meter wide 60 centimeters by 60 centimeters by one meter in total mm-hmm. so very deep like as far as down as you can go and then yeah. one meter times 60 centimeters and um Then you put uh, weeds, uh, cow manure, uh, wood chips, uh, mix it with soil into the hole. And then, after a couple of months, when it's decomposed, you plant a tree. And that means the roots are able to develop much faster. And uh, the trees we have planted with this system uh, are doing much better and growing really fast. Uh, I didn't try it, I only tried it with a few geisha trees, and they also grew up. So now we're trying with 80 to see if we can get the rest. So uh, the reason why I planted geisha is obviously because of flavor. Uh, Everyone says it's a pain in the ass to grow geisha. Um, It's a very fragile tree with poor root systems and so on. So we'll see how it goes. And then then I have some Ethiopian landrace. That means uh, some Ethiopian cultivars that we don't really know the name of. Uh, I got some seeds from Hilberto in, in El Salvador. He had planted some on his farm. He basically inherited... Um, a cultivar research farm from Puru Cafe in in El Salvador. Mm. Um, so he had a lot of different cultivars on his farm, and uh, then he had kind of selected the best ones, and he gave me some seeds of those. So,
0: and you already touched about this probably in the the FAQ, but uh, that is um, what we're we're having a raffle of at the moment. Yes, as well, and that's
1: what we're drinking right now. Yeah, for those of you who can hear that we're drinking coffee. Yeah. So those are the trees that I planted in 2019. They're growing quite fast. Uh, they're quite big um, and producing well. And then I planted another type of Ethiopian landrace uh, that is a little bit smaller. The trees uh, they're growing a little bit slower, and uh, but are already in production. But we will pick the first coffee next year. Hmm. Uh, I was I managed to pick like uh, less than 100 grams this year of those and. Uh, Sample roasted it and tasted it, and it was really good. Um, Tasted like strawberry and cream. Mm. But I don't think it will taste like that next year. Then we have a bigger sample. Um, And then, of course, we have a museum, we call it, which is like a small section of the farm where we have different cultivars, you know, rare cultivars, some seeds that I get here and there. Yeah. um, Just to see if there is something we should plant. So some of them are very tall, some of them are short, some are very productive, some are not. Uh, some have leaf rust, some don't. Um, and then we're taking samples, marking the trees, taking samples, tasting to see select new trees for the future.
0: Right. So it's uh, quite a uh, almost a scientific way of working as well. You're doing experiments and you're planting um, different seeds, you're trying stuff. Not necessarily science based, but <laughs> experience based. Yeah. Um, right.
1: Because um, <coughs> I mean, there are thousands of different cultivars that you can grow um, and uh, but not all of them will adapt well to your climate and your kind of type of soil and and, uh, environment. So uh, that's why we have to also at Tamana, we are planting many different ones and then based on taste and appearance and productivity and so on. we, and resilience against uh, diseases and stuff, we mm. select the best ones so that we can produce more of. Um, yeah. So it's just a natural selection. It's Darwinism in in reality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Coffee trees. It sounds like it. <laughs> um,
0: so w- as we can hear, you, you have a lot of um, experience with this and... and um, uh, going back to the timeline as well uh, this takes time um, but uh, do you feel like um, this has changed you in any way how to your outlook on it and uh, maybe your motivation as well how, how you work with coffee um, yeah definitely has
1: changed the way I think about buying coffee um, how we negotiate price we don't really negotiate we offer a price and normally we get a yes straight away <laughs> Uh, but, uh, for instance, uh, uh, I mean, it it, uh, it has opened my eyes to what it actually means to be a farmer. Because it's a lot of hard work and it's also a lot of waiting. Like, because yeah. the trees are just there, you know. <laughs> so um, you have to really plan out your work. And uh, th- the hard reality of a farmer today is that uh, labor is really difficult to get in most places and uh, it's becoming more and more expensive and less and less people want to do it Mm. central america there's a big issue with migration to the u.s so a lot of the people who were used to work in the farms are not there anymore um for good reasons i mean it's a hard job and not very (laughs) nice if you have to do it every day and normally it doesn't pay very well and for instance now when elias has a harvest now a small harvest so it's not a lot of cherries on the tree it's called the mitaka he has like the main harvest in uh, april to july and now it's a small harvest from mm. november to january but there are no workers around because everyone else is in a different area where they have the main harvest so the workers move around and uh, so he basically has to just take the decision of going in and just picking out everything uh, not doing any selec- selective picking, which means the quality will suffer. Right. So all these kind of details, it has opened my mind because uh, I have been able to stay on one farm for you know two, three months in a year mm. and see the everyday life of it. Not just like normally when you're a coffee buyer, you will visit a farm. At best, you might spend the night, but normally you would spend a day, eat lunch, go back to your hotel, and then you're having a fine life that's it mm. so you don't really get uh, small details all the time um so it wasn't until i started staying at Tamala that i kind of uh, got a better insight into how it is and also started staying at the farms with the other farms that i buy from so yeah spending the night there and spending more time with them uh, it's important i think and um for sure yeah so that's kind of a uh, and the reason why it has changed a little bit the way we buy coffees, for instance, um, before I was very, in- uh, how to say, um, influenced by other buyers. So a very common system would be: uh, you come to a farm, you only select the best coffees, and then you pay a higher price for the coffees that scored eighty-seven points, and then a the lower price for the coffee scored eighty-four points, um, even if it's the same cultivar. Uh, And that just happens out of randomness Um, for instance when we when elias picks coffee at tamana now he will maybe pick or 40 50 50 different lots every Mm -hmm. day is a different lot and then uh, of catura and colombia for instance and then we cup all those 40 samples and they taste Mm -hmm. very very similar some score 85 some score 87 some score 86 right but i I paid the same price for all of them yeah because the same amount of labor went in to produce it. Exactly. They didn't do anything different. No.
0: Yeah. It was just one lot happened to be slightly better than the other. Yeah. So to the farmer, it's uh, very important to have this kind of insurance. Yeah. And um, that yeah. You're, you're getting paid for yeah. the... For and the commitment. Yeah. So
1: they know, you know, this is the price we're going to get. And right. o- And sometimes I will pay more, not based on cup score necessarily. So if you look at our transparency report, you might see that uh, coffee scored lower and then another coffee, but we paid a higher price. Mm -hmm. And that's to do with availability. Yeah, It can also have to do with the amount of labor that went in to pick it. So I know that when Elias is going in to pick his uh, SL28 or Geisha, there's less coffee on the trees. They spend more time. (laughs) It's more difficult to pick. There's less trees. Um, So they spend much more time producing that coffee, and that's why
0: we pay a little bit higher price. For sure. So uh, at the moment, we're, we're actually doing the, the raffle for the, the harvest of uh, the coffee from Finca Arisuello. Oh, yeah. And um, as some of our listeners might know as well, we've, uh, we've done this one uh, once before, and we've had some, maybe some technical issues uh, r- related to how uh, overwhelming the response has been f- uh, to actually buy the, the coffee from Finca Arisuello. So uh, maybe you want to touch on um, why we're doing this raffle now. Yeah, I mean, so that you don't have to answer all the emails. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is a big part of my job, so I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> this is good. No, but last time, uh,
1: like uh, our first harvest, we we didn't have a lot of coffee. It was like five kilos that we put out for sale. And um, um, we didn't want to do an auction because I don't, don't want just the... People with the most money to be able to buy it. I want you know the people to be able to taste the coffee. So mm-hmm. um, we thought we would just launch the coffee and then first come first serve, uh, which is normally a quite a democratic way of doing it. But uh, when the website crashes, it didn't work. So um, yeah. everyone everyone was uh, uh, unhappy, including ourselves. Um, so this time, when the second harvest is released which uh, I guess tomorrow we're recording in this on sure. Thursday. So tomorrow sure. we will actually draw 80 people uh, yep. that has signed up to our raffle yep. that will be able to buy uh, our coffee. And we have hundreds and hundreds of entries, so uh, there's a lot of people who want to buy it, but we're only selecting 80 people that right. can buy 100-gram bags. So we, we have 10 kilos in total, so that means we have 2 kilos left. Some of it will be sold in our store. Uh, on the 17th of December in the morning. That's a Saturday, so we open at 11. So I will be there. We will probably have 10 bags for sale,
0: and then we might be able to serve a few cups. Nice. <laughs> so both a learning experience in growing and harvesting, but also in technical yeah. solutions, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. But uh, good luck to everyone uh, who signed up for the raffle. Yeah. And uh, be sure to stop by uh, this weekend at, um, at the shop um, so, um, maybe we'll, we'll uh, move on to what the future might hold. Um, where do you see uh, Finca Azuelo in 10 years? <sighs> it's a difficult uh,
1: question. I actually think a lot about that when I'm at the farm. Um, sometimes you just feel like giving up, you know, because <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and I haven't been able to see a lot of pro- progression um, one of the things that I learned when I was now in Guatemala uh, looking at what uh, Josue is doing um, it really it really gave me confidence that I'm on the right track so um, you know I, I have never farmed coffee before I've seen a lot of coffee farms and what I think are healthy coffee farms but mm. they're not necessarily healthy um, plant health is also how the roots are uh, not just the leaves you know <laughs> so um we have a. Um, uh, when watching his farms and seeing uh, how he was operating, I, w- I was more optimistic. So, um. Nice. Um, I think the future, at least for the next five years, is to slowly plant a little bit more coffee. Uh, we're not gonna go crazy. So, we're not gonna do like 2,000 plants at once. We're gonna do. Because we have to dig these big holes, uh, we have to do. Um, you know, anything from 100 to three, four hundred trees at a time, mm. and that's just because I have to produce compost, and uh, there we have to dig the holes, we have to, you know, put the mulch and everything into the holes, and yeah. it takes time. Yeah, and also I don't want to rush into planting something that I don't want. So right, uh, we're also researching the r- cultivars we have available and seeing which ones to plant. Um, so that's the kind of next five years, I think, will slowly increase production. And, uh, of course, uh, figure out what, uh, how much shade we should plant. And plant more shade. Um, yeah. And then I think parts of the farm just grow as a forest. Uh, just mm. let uh, nature do its work. Because I think we need to preserve forest. Mm. And also maybe we could plant coffee in there in the future. <laughs> you never know. And uh, the plan, like, yeah, idealistically, I would have enough coffee to be able to sell so we can have some income to the farm yeah um that means green coffee Mm. um and uh maybe have a person to stay there who we could train um also how to use the microscope to analyze soil samples and compost yeah and uh, train other farmers how to make compost and do the techniques we're doing but that's you know that's ideal I'm I'm uh, not very good at um delegating
0: (laughs) (laughs) you want to do it yourself yeah a little
1: bit and uh i'm also not uh, very good at managing people from afar so um i probably need some help with that um so if you're listening and you are into soil biology or want to learn about it uh, send us a message uh if you want to stay in colombia for a year or two or three or even six months could be interesting
0: um because uh, I definitely need some help uh, getting things up and running. Right. So uh, when maybe you someday have this up and running at the level that you want to, idealistically, um, uh, what what would you use this kind of um, income? Or maybe the, the, if there is some kind of uh, profit here, what what kind of um, uh, goal would you have for that? I would buy well. a Ferrari, no? <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think, uh, you know... Um,
1: Idealistically, we would have a small kind of school at the farm uh, that the coffee would pay for. Um, So uh, that means teaching other farmers how to do the techniques we're doing. Um, Also, uh, creating a website where the information is accessible. Like, I've spent so many hours online on YouTube, on Google, reading research reports, trying to find information on how to do this. And it's really difficult to find. And sometimes when you find it, it's in a different language. Yeah. Um, So uh, maybe gathering the information uh, into one place um, and uh, hopefully have it in both Spanish and English um, could be uh, ideal. But at the moment, I don't have resources to do it. And I've been speaking with all the farmers on how to do it. And then, of course, everyone has opinions on what should be there and what should not. I right. think it should just be a, a hub where people share ideas and experiences. Yeah. Because I cannot tell a farmer what to do. Um, if I tell a farmer to do something and their conditions and environment is completely different, it might not work at all. So mm. every farm is a little bit different. Every environment is different. So you have to kind of uh, <clears throat> give them, give people tools. Uh, so that they can pick and choose a little bit how they can do it in their environments and it's going to be a process for at least for the next 50 years i think uh, where people do a lot of trial and error and then yeah. hopefully you know in 100 years uh, we know how to do this so okay you have this type of uh, environment this type of soil these are the things you need to do yeah a lot of times when you make compost and. Work with the fungi, for instance, mm. which is an important part of uh, feeding a coffee plant. You have something called mycorrhizal fungi, which are fungi uh, fungus that lives in the soil uh, that will team up with roots, plant roots, in order to feed the plant roots. And the roots feed the fungi. <laughs> so they live in symbiosis. And um, you can inoculate your soil with mycorrhizal fungi spores that you can buy on Amazon but those might not grow well in Colombia because right. they're harvested in Oregon or in Norway or you know yeah. in Australia. So you really need to find uh, mycorrhizal or local mycorrhiza and uh, kind of cultivate that and uh, inoculate your soil with that. And the best way to do that is to just go at the nearby forest <laughs> and grab it from there. And by grabbing it from there, I mean just take some soil and put it into your compost pile, take yeah. some leaves laying on the forest floor and put it into your compost pile.
0: Yeah. And to me, this, this uh, um, it, it sounds like you need a lot of uh, either experience or knowledge to be able to do this in an efficient way and make it work. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, there's uh, a lot of context here, so it might not work in the same way in every location. No. Uh, so, yeah.
1: And I think, you know, there's details to everything. The devil is always in the details, but um, having an understanding is more uh, important. So, for instance, people always ask me, why don't I use coffee pulp in my compost piles? Because it's high in nitrogen, I wouldn't have to use cow manure and so on. Mm. The problem is a lot of the coffee pulp that I have access to at the moment is sprayed with fungicides. So if I'm trying to grow fungus in my compost pile and put material with fungicides on, that doesn't go well. Right. So it's not even about being certified organic or something like that. I don't care about certification. It's just I cannot put fungicides in something where I'm trying to grow fungus. Yeah. So um, uh, up until now, we haven't been able to produce pulp, of course, because we have only produced 30 kilos of coffee. But uh, in the future, we will. And then we will for sure use it in our uh, compost piles. Yeah. um, you kind of have to think about everything holistically in yeah. order to make it work. And, um, let's say in organic farming, it is allowed to use copper spray, uh, often called Bordomics to prevent leaf rust, to kill the leaf rust, but it will also kill the beneficial fungi. Mm-hmm. So you cannot do that. No. You have to mm-hmm. think of a different way to do it. So, um, that's the kind of, uh, mentality you need to have. And, uh, that will help you uh, progress with your project. And that's how I've learned, because you have to think about these things. And I'm trying things, you know, instead of uh, adding herbicides, I'm adding wood chips to the soil. Wood chips is a perfect mulch. It keeps moisture. It prevents weeds from growing, at least for a while. And it's great fungal food. So. Um, um but how where do you get the wood chips you know and is it treated <laughs> all these things you have to right.
0: think about so there's a lot of a lot of uh, parts in play here and yeah, it it's a, it sounds to me as well that it's a, a culmination of both uh, knowledge experience and time yeah takes a lot of time yeah right and that's that's kind of
1: what i'm the goal is for me to do all the mistakes so that it's easier for others to to learn from my mistakes and um yeah so the information needs to come out uh, sooner or later but uh, it will take some time before I'm there I think because I don't want to go in now and start recommending people to do stuff when I'm not 100% sure that it works so um, exactly um that's the worst thing I can do because yeah I am I can be able to afford to not produce coffee for 5 years but a, a f- coffee farmer <laughs> that has their 100% of their living income from coffee mm. cannot uh, risk the the their income
0: exactly yeah so then the the starting point is different for sure mm. yeah so I think we'll, we will we're nearing us uh some some somewhere here wow <laughs> is there anything you want to anything we've uh, forgotten to mention here anything you want to add to this before we, we wrap it up maybe oh wow um Yeah, I mean, uh, soil biology is very
1: complex. I've tried to explain it in a few lectures that are already on YouTube. You can check them out also on our fincaelsuelo.com webpage. Follow our Instagram account, fincaelsuelo.
0: That's at fincaelsuelo. Yeah. And uh, to me, that was a, a very impressive part of uh, starting to work with you as well. I just want to say that because uh, I think most people are used to seeing you in a white shirt, uh, standing outside your espresso bar maybe, or in some other setting. But seeing uh, you in the soil and working with the, with, uh, with the ground <laughs> and uh, as a farmer is uh, very impressive as well. So be sure to check that out. Um, and here you can also follow the ups and downs of the work being done at the farm, of course. So yeah, go yeah. follow that account.
1: And please also, uh, you know, comment or do whatever on our Instagram because uh, I'll try to answer any questions you might have. We do get a lot of critique and people say this will never work and blah, blah, blah. And I can't wait to prove them wrong. But uh, <laughs> so far they are, they are winning. So um, uh, I, I, I am quite humble about the, uh, the task because I, I'm still not 100% sure that, it will, that I will succeed with it. I know mm. that the system works mm. uh, because I've seen it. Um, but I'm not sure if I'm able to con- succeed with it. But if I am living in Norway and running a farm in Colombia, you know, if I'm able to do it, then for sure a small holder farmer, uh, you know, the average size farming in Colombia is two hectares. Most of the time the family works on the farm. Uh, they're there every day. So if I can succeed, they for sure can succeed. Um, right. Because they will be able to do a lot more work than I and am able to do. So... um. That's the kind of goal with it. And uh, I think, you know, um, uh, not just in coffee, but in general, uh, uh, we need to shift away from the kind of uh, regimes we are doing now, like the mineral fertilizer and everything that we talked about. Yeah. Um, time We have to change. Like, there is no, there's a lot of carbon being lost into the atmosphere from the soil, actually. Whenever Mm. you till the soil, Mm. uh, the fungi is actually made of carbon. So, when they are disappearing, you know eventually that carbon uh, comes into the atmosphere. so there is also research on this uh, where you can uh, sequester a lot of carbon with regenerative agriculture. Um, so um, that's part of the solution. it's not the solution, but it's a huge part of the solution on uh, how to to capture carbon without having to invest in expensive machines or anything. You just yeah. invest in your soil yeah. Um, there's a couple of uh, movies that I, I highly recommend if you're, if you're just slightly interested in, in soil biology or the kind of work we're doing. And it's not going to be very technical or anything, but it's, uh, I would say, more entertaining and inspirational movies. Um, Kiss the Ground uh, yep. with Woody Harrelson as a narr- narrator. Uh, I think it's on Netflix still. And then there's another movie that is fantastic called The Biggest Little Farm. Uh, About a a couple in California, I think they are, Uh, they buy a little farm and uh, they kind of describe the process of doing that in a regenerative way and how the farm changes with nature and the nature changes with the farm and so on. It's really, really nice. So uh, that's a good start. And if you're more like detail focused, uh, then check out Dr. Elaine Ingham on YouTube. She has a web page called the Soil Food Web School, I think it's called now. Just uh, Google Soil Food Web. Uh, Her work is fantastic. She does great online classes. I know the classes have been improved a lot since I took them. Uh, I actually took the classes with uh, one of the guys that are helping her out now with the digital stuff. He used to work for IBM or something. (laughs) (laughs) So they have become much more professional and... You can either take her compost class, how you where you learn how to make compost. You can take her microscope class, where you learn how to use a microscope to analyze your soil and compost and compost extract and teas, on and just uh, being able to analyze what kind of microbes you have, what you're lacking, what you need to grow. Uh, But I highly recommend taking her whole class uh, Mm. because then you get everything in once and. Also, a better understanding of how soil, soil uh, biology works with plants and how plants work with soil biology. Nice. There's a couple of books uh, written by Jeff Lowenfels uh, called uh, Teeming w- with Microbes is the best one. That's the best one to start with. Um, uh, that also talks about the same that Elaine is doing. Um, uh, he used to be a like a, a writer, like a garden writer or something for a newspaper. Uh, I don't know what, gardening writer? I don't yeah. know what you call it. <laughs> and he was really uh, also changed to a different mindset when he discovered the soil food web and uh, soil biology. It's yeah. a pretty easy-to-read book. Um, so if you're growing anything, uh, you should read that book. <laughs> right.
0: A lot of resources there to, um, to use for sure. yeah
1: and um, that's uh, it I think if you are interested in um, checking out our coffee it's already too late I guess when this episode is out (laughs) for our second harvest but um, our main harvest on the farm is normally between uh, April and August so that means uh, September October November next year we will have some more coffee for sale uh, for sure
0: and if you didn't get it this time then be sure to sign up for the next harvest and uh, we wish you good luck Uh, thanks Tim for talking about Finca El Suelo today thank you for listening
1: Thank you, all the listeners, to listening in to our podcast. You can check out all our other podcast episodes as well, uh, especially the one where we talk about transparency with Coffee Collective and also the one where we are talking about how we buy coffee together with Daniel and Marne who works for us. Then you'll get a better insight to how we work with farmers and how we buy coffee. And please also make sure to check out our Instagram account if you don't always do that. It's at timwendelbo. And if you want to subscribe to our coffee or check out our coffee at all, uh, we can only you can buy it online of course, timwendelbo.no, or come to our espresso bar at Gjerdinvega in Oslo, and we will be able to serve you there. Thanks for listening and uh, happy Festivus!